Well, if you'll open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 this morning, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 21 through 26, Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 26. And if you're visiting here with us today, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we're in a series right now going through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, verse by verse, uh, walking our way through uh, this New Testament uh, Gospel. And we believe at Destiny that the Bible is the Word of God. And so uh, as the Word of God is preached and proclaimed that God is speaking to us, His people, and so where we are in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, this is called the Sermon on the Mount. And what we see is that Jesus went up onto a mountain to deliver a message to his people. And what we've seen to this point in Matthew's Gospel is that it, it has been declared to us very clearly that Jesus is not just a Jewish carpenter, as the famous bumper sticker says. He is much more than that. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the King that God had promised to bring to His people. God had made promises all throughout Scripture that there was coming a King, there was coming a Deliverer, there was coming one who would rule and reign, one who would sit on the throne of David. And Matthew opens his gospel by saying and declaring that Jesus is that king. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these promises that God made to his people. In the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 4, we saw that Jesus was tempted by the devil. He was tempted by the devil. Now all of us have been tempted by the devil. And all of us have fallen into temptation, have have fallen into sin through temptation. But Jesus, in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil, he rebuked the devil. He did not fall into sin, but rather he uh, refused the offer that was given him. Jesus was given an offer in the wilderness by the devil, and he was told, if you will bow down and worship me, you can have all of the kingdoms of the earth. You can have all the kingdoms of the earth if you will just bow down and worship me. But Jesus refused the devil and he rebuked the devil with the word of God. And he said, the word of God says that you shall only worship God and him alone will you serve. And so instead of taking Satan's offer, he instead chose to defeat Satan rather than worship him. And the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus did just that. Jesus defeated Satan. Jesus did not sin, but he went to the cross as the spotless Lamb of God and he laid down his life for sinners. And that through the gospel, Jesus uh, defeated Satan, he defeated sin, he defeated even death. And that risen now, risen on the third day, he, he ascended into heaven where he rules and he reigns now presently as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the King of all creation. Amen. And here in this sermon on the mount, Jesus is teaching how we are to live as citizens of his kingdom. 
What does it look like now that Jesus is risen, that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, that, that he is the ruler of all creation? What does it look like to live as a part of his kingdom? This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And we've just finished a section where we looked at that Jesus taught that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament law, but rather to fulfill it. And today, as we move forward in this sermon, we're going to see an example of what that fulfillment looks like. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge the guard and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. These are the words of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is, as the psalmist declares, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, as we spend these next few moments here this morning, God, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts. Lord, that you would speak by the power of your spirit. Lord, these are not just words on a page, but they are truly, as you say, spirit and life. So, Lord, that, that you would write them on our hearts, that you would plant them deep within us, and that this word would grow and it would bear good fruit in our lives. Lord, that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Here Jesus begins this new section with this statement. You have heard that it was said. And he doesn't just say this here. I want to draw your attention to the fact that he says it five or six times throughout the rest of the chapter. If you look at verse 27, he begins this next section with the same phrase, you have heard that it was said. Again in verse 31, it also was said. In verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. In verse 38, you have heard that it was said. And again in verse 43, you have heard that it was said. Here Jesus is drawing a contrast between what he is coming to teach and something else. He's saying that, that I have a, a message that is, is a different message than the kind of message that, that you have heard and that you have received. And it has been said by many that, that what Jesus is doing here is 
He's correcting the teaching of the Old Testament. That that he's coming to bring correction on on the Old Testament law. That that he's setting himself in conflict with Moses. That essentially what Jesus is saying is that Moses taught one thing, but I'm teaching another. That Moses got it wrong, but here is the right teaching. And I would say that we must never let such a silly thought enter into our minds. And why should we not? Well, because if you look at verse 17, Jesus essentially said the exact same thing. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So so the conflict here that Jesus has is not one with Moses or the Old Testament. We should not let that thought enter our mind because Jesus himself told us not to think that. So Christ and Moses are not in conflict. So who is the conflict with? Because there's obviously a conflict here. Jesus is obviously contrasting what he is teaching and the message that he brought with something else that has been taught. So who and what is the conflict with? Well, if you look at verse 20... In the previous verse to this section, he tells us who his conflict is with. Verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is at odds with. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, you think the Pharisees are righteous? You think the scribes have have figured this out? Let me tell you, you have no idea how off they truly are. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes had perverted God's law. They had twisted God's law. They had perverted its teaching. The law of God, which was designed to draw us to the Savior... The law of God which was designed to expose our sinful condition before God and push us to God who's the only one who can forgive and to push us to God in faith that we might receive salvation. That's what the law of God was designed to do. The law of God was never designed as a moral code by which we could climb our way up to God. That's impossible. And in fact, the the Bible even tells this in in Jeremiah chapter 17 that we are so desperately sick and wicked that we don't even understand our own spiritual condition before God. That there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right before God, to justify ourselves before God who is righteous and God who is holy. And so we must have a righteousness imputed to us, that's credited to our account, that we receive by faith. And we see that goes all the way back to Abraham, the man of faith. That he was declared to be righteous by God because of his faith in God. And you see, the law of God was designed to expose our sin that we might turn to God in faith. And the Pharisees took the law of God and said, I can do that. We can do this. We don't need faith in God. We can just keep his commandments. And Jesus comes and he exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. 
that they had taught by their external religious actions that they could somehow produce holiness within their lives. Turning God's law into a set of rules by which they could be made righteous apart from faith in God. And they had rigged this system where they themselves put themselves on top of this pyramid scheme of religion. Whereby the, the teaching that they were peddling was making themselves filthy rich. So they did not love God. They did not serve God. In fact, they themselves hated God, wanted nothing to do with God. They only wanted to use God's law to serve themselves that they had set up as idols. We don't have time to turn there, but you could look at the exchanges that Jesus has with the Pharisees in John chapter 5, John chapter 8, where he absolutely exposes their heart condition before God. But we do have time to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Since we're in Matthew, we'll just skip forward a few pages this morning. We'll come back to chapter 5, but listen here to what Jesus says about the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He pronounces upon them seven woes or seven judgments. In Matthew 23, verse 25 He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. This is also a lesson for your children. You could teach them also how to wash dishes by this lesson. How many of you like it when you go to a restaurant and they give you silverware that's dirty? Right? Or, or somehow there's, you know, plate and just, it, it, it's obvious it has not been washed properly. As, as repugnant as that is to us, God says that trying to clean the outside of us up by our external deeds and actions, but not dealing with our heart is even much worse in his sight. Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. In Jesus' day, their their tombs, their sepulchers would uh, be made of a a concrete or a granite-type substance, and then they would paint them white. And so he says, you're you're like those, those whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This was the teaching of the Pharisees where they would pervert God's law to to make themselves look good, but it did not penetrate the heart. And so this is what Jesus is at odds with. And so when he says, you have heard that it was said uh, to those of old, he's, he's... 
contrasting the message that he came to bring with the message of his day, which is Phariseeism. And so, firstly, we who are part of Christ's kingdom, who call Jesus Lord, we must make sure that there is not an ounce of that in our walk with God. We must make sure that we understand full well that, that we are not saved by our own good works and righteous deeds. That apart from the work of Christ on the cross for us, we are under the just condemnation of a righteous and holy God. That apart from the work of Christ on our behalf, we are under the judgment of God because of our sin. We must dispel of any notion that we contribute anything to our salvation. One of my favorite quotes, and I share it often, is from Jonathan Edwards. The great Puritan preacher who said that we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. What do we have to do with our salvation? We committed the sin that put Christ on the cross. We do not make ourselves righteous. We can never get to the place where we think we have earned our right standing before God. If we are right with God, it is only by the work of Christ. If we are right with God, it is only because He has taken our punishment upon Himself. Because he has endured what we all deserve. That he endured it upon the cross. And that he offers to us forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who would put their faith in him. We must not have any ounce of Phariseeism in our hearts and in our lives. And what this does for the Christian is it keeps our heart soft before God. Because if you think you earned your righteousness, if you begin to think that you're a pretty good person, you know what you begin to do? You begin to look down on others. You begin to walk through life with self-righteousness and pride, which is as rotting bones inside a coffin, Jesus says. But those of us who have tasted of the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God. Should we not ourselves be gracious? Should we not ourselves be merciful? Should we not ourselves be compassionate? Having received of the greatest mercy and grace and compassion and love that the world has ever known. And what Jesus is saying is that those who are part of his kingdom, those who have tasted of the goodness and the grace of God, that this is not just a grace that saves, but this is a grace that transforms from the inside out. And so the gospel of Jesus and the law of God deal not only with our external actions, yes, but also with the inward man. It deals with our hearts. It exposes our attitudes. It it exposes our heart condition, our spiritual condition. Yes, God is concerned with our actions. But he's also concerned with the condition of our heart. 
Remember what God told Samuel when he anointed David. He said, man looks on the outward appearance, but I, the Lord, see the heart. Jesus taught in Matthew 15, we won't take time to turn there, but he taught that from the heart is where sin comes. From the heart is is where murder and strife and rage and anger and perversity and immorality, it comes from the heart of man, the sinful heart of man. And so what we need is not a set of rules and morals that we must keep because unless we have a new heart, we can't keep them. And that's what the law of God shows us, that we need a new heart. Jesus here goes on to say that you've heard it said that you should not commit murder. Here Jesus in his sermon, as he begins to shift now into the the moral requirements of being a part of his kingdom, which there, there is a moral requirement, he deals with what many of us would consider the greatest sin, murder, taking of another's life and here, of course, of course, he's referencing the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Murder is the taking of innocent human life. And it's thoroughly condemned. People should not murder one another. Now, that should seem obvious to us. But we live in a culture that has legalized murder for the last 50 years. The murder of the innocent, the murder of the unborn. The taking of innocent human life is evil, is is wicked in God's sight. It it violates his commandments. So so those who who would murder, those who would take innocent human life would violate the command of God have violated God's commandments. But Jesus here, he, he, he begins to say that the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, goes far beyond simply taking another person's life. Because hear me in this, a man can be killed in many other ways than taking his life. You can kill a man and his livelihood through slander, through defamation. Jesus here is saying that this sixth commandment is not just talking about the shedding of innocent blood, though it is talking about that. He's saying that it's talking about much more than that. And so he goes on to say that if any of you is angry with your brother... You have violated the sixth commandment. He goes on beyond anger and he says, if you insult them, if, you, if your anger overflows into insult, you'll be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This word insult is the Greek word raka. It means calling somebody good for nothing. It's, it's insulting their intelligence. The word fool is the Greek word more, and it's where we get our word moron from. And the, the fool in the Bible is, 
is not a, an issue of intelligence. The, the fool in God's word is an issue of someone's character. So here Jesus says, if you become so angry with someone that you go after their, you insult their intelligence, raka, and you assail their character, more, you fool, you're going after their reputation and their character, and you're trying to assassinate those things fueled by anger. Jesus says that is a violation of the sixth commandment. Now, we live in a culture today that has an insatiable appetite for this kind of activity. Absolutely is so hungry for this. The, the assaulting of one's character, the slandering and defaming of others for the purpose of doing them harm and doing their livelihoods harm. This is cancel culture. And Jesus says that it violates the sixth commandment. Our culture thrives on this. You do anything to make me angry, I'm going after you. I'm going to lie about you. I'm going after your character. I'm going after your intelligence. I'm going to dig up things from 30 years back in the past and throw them out there. I'm going to do everything that I can to hurt you. Jesus says, you're breaking the sixth commandment. Now, we live in a culture that thrives on this activity. From, from every sphere, from, from workplaces, online, social media, the world is all about this today. From, from every political spectrum, and it's even in the church. I don't, I don't have to preach about those people out there. This activity takes place in the church. Where we get so angry that we begin to assault someone's character. We get so angry that we begin to insult someone's intelligence. If we are doing that, we are breaking the Sixth Commandment. Amen. When we read the Sixth Commandment that says, Thou shalt not murder, we're so quick to check that one off our box. <laughs> Thou shalt not murder. I've never killed anybody. Check. I'll never kill anybody. I don't even need to worry about that one. Not so fast, Jesus says. Are you angry? Do you slander? If I find myself in a constant state of anger, hear this, I'm not living a Christ-like life. If this anger in my heart is causing me to insult and defame others, I violated the sixth commandment. So I must be very careful not to nurse grudges. I must be very careful not to allow bitterness into my heart. And to take root in my soul. Now, this is completely countercultural to where our world is right now because it is totally acceptable to sin in this way. And no one will call you on it, no one will call you to account on this. 
You can get in a, in a room full of people that share your views and you can insult, you can slander, you can defame and no one's going to call you on it. This is the new American pastime. It's superseded baseball. But hear me in this. Christ calls you on it. Christ calls us on it. When we're in those kinds of environments and the people around us are becoming enraged and angered and engaging in slander and character assassination, God calls his people to refrain, to abstain. And, and more than just simply remaining silent, we are called as salt and light to share the word of God. To say this is what God's word says. That God's people, those that are part of his kingdom, are not to do this. Now, if you start doing that, you'll probably lose some friends. If you start doing that, they might say, well, who do you think you are? Aren't you all holier than thou? Weren't you just last week saying the same stuff? You say, I know, but I went to church on Sunday. And my pastor preached this convicting message and I got right with God. And you need to get right with God. That's what you do. And then they, maybe they'll get right with God, maybe they won't, but hey, you leave that in the Lord's hands, right? Because we're called to be salt and we're called to be light. Who do you think you are? No, it's not a... I know who I am. I'm a fallen creature. I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I, I have no right. I'm not standing on my own righteousness. I hope you understand that too. When I stand up here, I'm not standing on my righteousness. This only by the grace of God, only by the righteousness of Christ. I want you to know I'm just as convicted about this as anybody else in here today. I'm just as guilty of this as anybody in here today. I'm not standing up here to point you to me and say I have all the answers. I'm standing up here to point you to Christ. And his blood. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. Our culture lives by a different set of values, but we're called to live by the values of the kingdom of God. And it is upside down from the world that we live in. Totally upside down. Well, how serious does God take this? Is this kind of like on his, you know, kind of low on his priority list? Kind of like, well, you could take it or leave it list. Well, let's see what he says here in verse 22. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Yikes. How seriously does God take sin? Very seriously. Very seriously. We would look at this and we would say, well, that's kind of down there on the list. That's, maybe I'll get to that one day. Jesus says, when you sin, when, if you've committed sin, if you've transgressed God's law, that as we all have, that we are liable to the judgment of God. And the fact that we would consider this to be a minor thing 
but that God views it to be a great thing. It shows us how in our, in our hearts as humans, it shows us how morally compromised we truly are. That we would look at that and we would say, wow, man, chill out, God. That, that's revealing to us how compromised we are before God. It reveals to us, if we have that attitude, just how much we've been inf- influenced by the fallen culture around us and not the culture of the kingdom of God. And notice this, that Jesus not only extends the nature of the violation from the act of taking someone's life to the very thoughts and the attitudes and the intent of the heart and our words, he extends the nature of the violation, but he also extends the nature of the judgment. Whereas at the beginning he said, you've heard it said of those of old, to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's speaking of a human court. So, so not only does Jesus press the issue from the external down to the internal, he also elevates it from the horizontal to the vertical. That not only are we liable among our peers, but we are accountable to God. Elevating this from the human court to the heavenly court. And so what do we do because we've all sinned in this way? Not not a single one of us is without sin. Well, Jesus in the next section gives some examples of what we do. And again, here Jesus is dealing with the horizontal, with, with those in our lives that we have sinned against with those that we may have been angry at and and boiled over in our anger. Verse 23, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What does Jesus say that we must do? He says we must make things right. We must go and we must make things right. We must repent. We must ask for forgiveness. Here he's speaking in the horizontal, the the forgiveness that we need from our neighbor, from those we have sinned against. Jesus gives the example here of somebody who is worshiping in the temple. They've brought their offering before the Lord. And as they're offering their offering, they they remember about this conflict. Jesus says, don't even finish worshiping before you leave and go and be reconciled. That there is an urgency to putting this to rest. There's an urgency to seeking after reconciliation. We would think, well, isn't worship important? Isn't that urgent? But worship is more than simply the outward act. If our worship of God is not influencing and affecting the way that we live our lives. We're just like the Pharisees. If our worship of God is not transforming our hearts to transform the way that we live, then our religion is worthless. So Jesus says, leave the offering, leave the worship, and go and be reconciled to your brother. For us, it would be like if we came into a worship service and 
And we're worshiping God, but we remember a conflict that we had. We remember how, how this is unresolved. Jesus would say, leave and go and make it right. Because our worship of God is more than the songs that we sing. Our worship of God is the way that we live our lives. And then come back and worship, he says. And then come back and finish the offering that you were making. He goes on to say that those who delay, verse 26, truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny, that there will be a high price to those who do not seek reconciliation. There will be a high price to pay if we let things fester and we let things grow. Things don't get better when we ignore them. They grow, they fester, they multiply, they entrench themselves in our soul. This, this bitterness, this anger, we must deal with it and deal with it quickly so that it doesn't spread and, and bring death to other parts of our lives and relationships. That there is a high price to pay if we delay in seeking reconciliation with our neighbor. Now in doing these things, hear me in this, Jesus is not giving us another set of boxes to check. Jesus is not just giving us another set of boxes where we say, okay, I'm not angry, check. I haven't slandered anybody today, check. I, you know, I'm not insulting anybody today, check. Okay, I'm good, I'm good. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Instead, what he's doing is he's showing us that we have all transgressed his law. And he's also revealing to us the impossibility of keeping his law apart from a renewed relationship with God whereby he is giving us a new heart and he is putting new desires in us. There is no way that I and my strength, my human efforts, can keep this law. It is only by the power of the Spirit of God, the transforming work of Christ, whereby I could keep this law. And so for some of you here today, this will be comforting. You will find comfort in these words. Because you are in a covenant relationship with God. Because you have had your sins forgiven. Because you have had all of your anger and all of your outburst and all of your wrath and, and all of your insults and all of your character assassination. All of that is under the blood for you. And so you have peace with God. And that God by his spirit and through his word is transforming you and making you into a new creation. And so for those of you in that camp who are in covenant with God, this is comforting for us because we have the assurance that he who began a good work in us will complete it in our lives, that he will not leave us incomplete, he will not leave us or forsake us, but that our sins are forgiven and that he is leading us to walk in righteousness and holiness and that he is writing his law upon our hearts. For others, this message will be terrifying. Because if you are not in covenant with God through the death of His Son Christ, 
What this message says is that not only are you accountable to God for your actions, but you're also accountable to him for your very thoughts, for your very attitudes, for your very words. That God not only sees everything you've ever done, but he knows every thought you've ever thunk. That doesn't sound right. Every thought you've ever thought. He sees and knows all. That there is no escaping him. Your very life came from him. Amen. He is the author and the giver of life. And one day we will all stand before him. There is no escaping God. There is no escaping his judgment. We will all stand before him. And we will either be found clothed in the righteousness of his son Jesus or we will be found clothed in our own sin and shame. And God in Christ extends to us the offer of salvation. God in Christ extends to all of us the forgiveness of sin through the work of his son Jesus. That we can know that our sins are forgiven. That we can know that we've made, been made right with God. That we can know on that last day when we stand before him. That we will hear well done good and faithful servant. Put your faith in Christ. He is your only hope. He is your only hope. The way Jesus handles God's law, it shows us as Christians, as believers, the proper way to handle it and approach it. To, to not just look, as Paul says, at the letter of the law, but to look at the spirit that's behind it. That it's not just enough to not murder someone. We, we should be seeking after their well-being and their, what produces flourishing and, and good in their lives. That we should submit to that spiritual principle, the heart principle behind it. And that as believers, as a part of the new covenant, that we are surrendering our hearts to the Lord for him to write his law on it. And so as we all have failed in this area, as we've all been angry without cause, as we've all used our mouths to sin against others, as we've all transgressed God's law, what do we do? What we all do is we go to the cross. We go to the cross. We run to Christ. We pursue him. We, we, we accept his free offer of grace. We come to the cross with our sin and with our shame and we lay it at his feet and we receive his righteousness. And then he bids us and beckons us to go and sin no more. This is the good news of the gospel. And he puts his power and his spirit in us to change our desires, to make us love what he loves and hate what he hates and want what he wants and to give us the very power to obey him. So come to the cross today. Come to Christ today. It is only in Christ where you will find forgiveness for your sins. Amen.
I invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to do just that today. We're going to come to the table. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the price that was paid for our salvation. The Lord's Supper reminds us that Christ shed his blood so that our sins, which are many, could be forgiven. Our sins, not only of our actions, but our sins that Christ reveals are even our hearts, our attitudes, our, our thoughts. That we come before him and we lay it all at his feet and he welcomes us. The gospel is that we all stand before God, the righteous judge. We've all sinned before this judge. We've all transgressed his law. But the incredible message of the gospel is that the judge himself gets down off the bench to pay the penalty and the price for the sins that we've committed. The judge himself takes upon him the price for our sin. And what could compel someone to do that but only their love for us? And so the good news of the gospel is that God loves us. He has taken our sin upon us and that by his stripes we are healed. And so we come to the cross today, we come to the table today in faith, knowing that our sins are forgiven, confessing our sins before God, asking for repentance, but knowing in faith that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us of unrighteousness. If you're here today and you're, you've never done that before, you've, you've never confessed Christ, do that today. Make that confession and come join us at the table. Christ welcomes you and we welcome you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it shows us the truth and that it reveals to us, Lord, who you are. It reveals to us your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you for the invitation that we have to partake in your work on our behalf. As we come to the table this morning, we remember the broken body and the shed blood. We remember and we come in faith knowing that our sins have been forgiven. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.